Hello there, and welcome to CIO UK Leadership Live. I'm Doug Drinkwater, the editor of CIO UK, and today I'm joined by Sarah Cunningham, who is the Senior VP of Enterprise IT at Arm. Sarah, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Doug. Thanks very much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Fantastic. So today we're going to be looking at uh, your education, an unusual, unconventional route, you could say, into senior uh, technology leadership roles. We're going to look at uh, your leadership qualities and also the importance of cultural awareness. And we're also going to look at some of the DNI initiatives that you've spearheaded over the last year, as well as work on cloud and SD-WAN and all other uh, elements of your role. Now, if time allows, as per other CIO UK Leadership Lives, I will ask a couple of questions at the end that, shall we say, are more unconventional. So hopefully we'll get a, we'll get an idea of who the real Sarah Cunningham is by the end of this session today. Excellent. As a bit of brief background, so Sarah's uh, mentioned the Senior VP of Enterprise IT at Arm. Most of you will know Arm from the chips you see in smartphones, desktops and servers. And according to Arm, there's 240 plus billion chips in products today, covering almost 70% of the world's population. And it gives you an idea of the scale uh, they have today. And prior to joining Arm in 2018, Sarah's held senior service management and operational roles at Vocalink, JLT Group, uh, Excel Kaplan and Thomson Reuters, where I believe she worked for around 17 years in some interesting working environments, uh, shall we say, to boot. But Sarah, I want to start with your background and how you came to be a technology leader, because I think what's interesting is you didn't go to university. So um, just talk us through how you got to this point and how you would describe your own journey, really. Um, yeah, you know, you're right. It wasn't a traditional route. And um, uh, 27 odd years ago when uh when the career advice that you got at school was very very binary so it was kind of you know you either went into a, a vocation or you went into a university and there's no kind of concept of a, a, a different path or certainly not for me at school so when I was at school um I found out that I was dyslexic and it was a real blow to my confidence because there wasn't the same level of um, understanding about how you help people progress within those with with those uh, gifts, for want of a better word, or or actually, uh, you know, a really good understanding about what what was great about people with um, who 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 weren't traditionally normal, uh, as we were described at school. So I, I really really struggled, um, and while I enjoyed the social side of school and sports and other things uh you know educationally I struggled so when it came to going into the sixth form I, I left uh, and went to a, a sixth form um that did a wider variety of options which included film studies theatre studies acting as well as traditional um A levels such as you know Italian French English others and I spent two years studying um film studies theatre studies um, and acting there and and really enjoyed it um, again, from a social point of view, but but quickly realised there was very little natural talent that sat within my uh, capability in acting. Um, and that when I left at 18, I'd really have to think about what I wanted to do. Um, so I'd done lots of work in services. So I always had a, a Saturday jobs um, from waitressing to working in kitchens. Um, so I, I went into those types of roles when I left uh, sixth form. 
and then started to work in uh, decided I wanted to move to London I grew up out just outside of London um, and actually it felt really exciting it felt like there were lots of opportunities and I could still live with my friends who'd gone to university and experience some of the the fun sides of that um, so I, I went into London um, and started work as a receptionist and while I was doing those roles there were uh, uh, there were IT elements in the organizations that I was working in and I remember being completely fascinated at, at how straightforward and logical it was and, and the people who were doing those roles really were uh, you know got to see all aspects of the organization they worked across all of the different departments they had really strong relationships with people and I had a natural curiosity about that um, so after a couple of years in that space, I um, saw a, a role on a on a help desk in an equity order routing company, and um, and I went for an interview there, and and kind of really wanted to sweet talk the CEO because I was like, look, I don't have any IT experience, but like I'm sure I'm going to be a lot cheaper than anyone else, and I'm sure if you give me a chance, I'll I'll work really hard. And that was really my entry into IT. And it was a really great place to start. Service desks are a great place to start. You learn all about the customers. You learn all about the technology. So that kind of got me really into it. Mm -hmm. and, and would you say you've had any barriers along the way? Because there is a preconceived notion, I do think, around um, what kind of education route you should take, especially with degrees, um, but also if you, you know, that you know with dyslexia in particular mm. some people going back 10 15 years in particular may have taken a, a different view on on that than they would do today have you seen that as a blocker in in some instances so I think that I I, ha I definitely haven't seen it as a blocker per se um but I definitely had um I guess anxiety about it probably until I was in my early 30s so when I was in my mid-20s I had an amazing boss who taught me loads, and I'm sure we'll, we'll cover those things at another point. Um, and she had asked for some support for me uh, when uh, from the learning team at the organization I was in. And because uh, she's like, you know, I have this great talent, but she's dyslexic. And I think we could, you know, we could find some writing training or some communication training for her. And they were like, oh, why do you want to make, do you want to, do you want to fire her? <laughs> and she was like, no, 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 I, 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 you know, I want to help. So there was that that concept, that that preconception. And then also uh, until I was about 30, like I didn't really talk about not having a degree because it was I, I, like I was embarrassed because everybody else that I worked with did. And it was a, it was just assumed that you had one. I didn't say on my resume whether I did or didn't have one. Like I was purposely quite vague about that. Um, and uh, again, I had another great leader who was like, well, look, I can put you through for university and we'll, we'll sponsor you through all of those things. But do you think it actually matters now? Yeah, true. You know, yeah. if you think of all the experience you have to date, you probably wouldn't have had that if you had gone a traditional route. Yeah. Um, and, and she was right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's super interesting on that. I ask almost some of a personal interest on the degree because it's a different field entirely. But I, I haven't got a degree even and come into journalism. There's a a notion that you should uh you know you should come from a certain background and you should have a certain academic yeah. qualification so I do think this and that's dispelling the myth perhaps of what um what certifications you know give you and what experience give you as well really I I think you're I think you're a thousand percent right and actually now I'm quite proud of it I'm quite proud of of 
the fact that I don't, not because I think you should think, you know, not because I think it's wrong to have a degree, yeah. mm-hmm. but because actually it, you don't have to if you if you have the right um, attitude and the right ethics around how you behave and how you want to progress in life. I, I don't think it matters. Yeah. And I'm purposely now spending time with, when invited, uh, with uh, kind of 16 to 18-year-olds in schools talking mm-hmm. about alternative routes because one of the things that I found through talking to my son's school, mm. actually at that age, similar to how I was at kind of 15 to 18, there was no, you think there's no other path. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you think you're really limited in what you can achieve when actually that's not the case, as you know, Doug. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sarah, I want to come on to your kind of recent promotion in a few moments and, and what that role entails as you move forward. But just keeping with yourself really is what your personality is and your leadership style how do you think these experiences have shaped you as a leader and that authenticity because I know you I believe uh, I have the foresight of having seen your CI 100 application I believe your son you know was diagnosed with with autism so you've you've had a few kind of life challenges along the way how would you say that that's informed not only who you are but also how you manage those teams so I think that I, I think that through my life experience and also being in an organisation like ARM, which really does champion individuality and championing you being your brilliant self, you being authentic to who you are, has really helped with the uh, creating an environment of psychological safety where you feel that you can be open about these things. Um, so I was very open about my son's diagnosis and what it meant to me, because the, even though... I, you know, I'm happy we know and I'm happy we have the right support mechanisms around him now. First couple of days, I was really sad. You know, I was really sad that I'd done something wrong or I hadn't been supporting him in the right way or I'd drunk too much coffee during pregnancy. You know, all of the things that are actually completely wrong, but you go through that that cycle of acceptance. So I think um, that's really helped and, and our, the environment at arms really helped. But but for me, I think both my dyslexia, meaning that I don't like lots of I don't like lots of written detail. I much prefer to have a conversation and bring things to life and agree with things means that it's really helped. It's really given me the leadership style I have, which is, you know, my organization, which is, you know, knocking on for nearly a thousand people now. If we include the partners that we rely heavily on to deliver our services, people aren't a name on a spreadsheet. You know, I, I every year I have a goal of having a one to one with every single person in the organization because I really want to know about the fact that I don't know, Wendy likes to have sushi with her son once a week and he's seven and you know, just the, the humanness of it and it, it just helps bring the bring us all together and make us closer. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's that being authentic, being your true self, which is actually what I know we were set together at the CI 100 where Joe Drake was speaking about much the same thing of, you know, almost being accused of being uh, too friendly. Or, and she said, well, actually, I've got to be myself. You know, I've got to I've got to lead with the qualities that I've been given rather than perhaps um, having to adapt to a different environment. And it's always really awkward, right, when you're trying to think about how someone else would answer a question or how someone else would do things actually it's really inhibiting and it's not very natural and people see straight away that you're not being authentic and and you're you're not being yourself which I think is so I she was great I mean her her whole speech uh, uh, was was excellent yeah absolutely um 
So, Sarah, I want to come on to some of your projects in a minute. So, and in particular, I think there's some outstanding work from what we saw on, on DNI. Um, but just talk me through the recent promotion to the SVP role. What's your kind of core role and remit? What's your trajectory of travel for the year ahead? Where are you kind of looking to? Big question. I'm asking about five questions in one there. but That's, that's lots, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, so I was lucky enough to... So uh, what would be a traditional enterprise IT function under a single CIO within mm-hmm. our a few years ago, separated into two parts of the organization. Um, what was what we class as digital IT was essentially our enterprise product ownership and development mm-hmm. went into marketing and kind of created a digital world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, enterprise security and technology operations and technology operations was, was what I ran, moved under the CFO. Um, I think it's excellent working under the CFO, by the way. I think that it's really helped me understand uh, the mechanics of how organizations run. I think so much decision-making and so much um, influence across the organization actually sits in the CFO function that there's a lot to learn there. So um, in uh, March of this year, the uh, um, ARM decided to bring those the, all those functions together under a single leader. And um, I was really honoured that I was chosen to take on that role. Um, and it's something I was, I, I, I'd only really discovered in the last couple of years that I, I really wanted to do. When I had breakfast with um, a lady at Amazon a, a couple of years ago, uh, we were talking about the fact that the CIO had left arm and she was like, well, do you want to be the CIO? And I was like, well, I don't know, I've never really thought about that. Um, and she's like, do you want somebody else to be the CIO? And I was like, no, no, actually I don't. So at that stage, I was quite clear both with my leadership um, and with ARMS leadership and with my own personal development about where I wanted to go and, and what step I wanted to take when an opportunity arose. Yeah. Um, so I had some great mentoring um, from both internal in ARM and external in ARM and also spent a lot of time working on um, initiatives that were wider than enterprise IT, so our global response to COVID and running the being the Cambridge site lead for ARM, which is our largest campus, and really kind of looking holistically at my um, skill sets and, and maturing those. So that so ARM really helped me build to be ready for that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, we run in enterprise IT everything from enterprise security, from our service desk and our infrastructure all the way through to our high performance compute. So we have a hundred twenty seven thousand slots in our on-prem data center. So that's not counting our cloud presence. Wow. Um, <laughs> come, yeah, that's a bit. That's a bre- big breadth of role there. Uh, I mean, coming beyond IT out of interest, um, that's something that we're seeing an increasing trend of. Actually, I just came back from the Gartner Symposium in. In Barcelona. And oh, been... did you have a good time? Oh, it's it fast. I mean, really interesting conversation. Yeah. And uh, the, the scale of the event was was quite incredible in its own right. But the thing I thought was quite interesting was that IT leadership is kind of not just confined to just a kind of back office order taker these days. It's much more deeply involved and engaged with with other business functions. Is that something that you're kind of seeing in your role? That there's much more. I, it's a bit of a cliche, but technology is the business, right? It's kind of underpinning everything that the organisation's trying to do. So I think uh, I think you're absolutely right, and and I I don't think it's a new thing that technology has mm-hmm. that capability. I think what is happening is that we're seeing a resurgence of people understanding yeah. how important automation mm-hmm. and end to end life cycles of 
things, whether they're orders or payments or whatever they are, all sitting together. Um, and IT is the unique enabler for that. I think that COVID had a unique role in making organisations very aware again of how how pivotal pivotal IT is to ensuring that they can operate. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know that that definitely saw made, made a difference. I think for all IT leaders. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. A phrase I keep hearing actually is um, it's pretty pertinent to where we are right now. But it's, never waste a good crisis it seems to be coming up uh, time and time again in terms of it's opportunity to infuse what the organization yeah. is doing or extend what the organization is doing as well it can and actually it is one of those places that actually you know in many respects thrives in a good crisis because mm-hmm. through years and years of best practice and processes and um, you know, architectural design and all those other things, it becomes second nature to know how to react in a crisis, have frameworks about how you communicate in them and other things that actually end up applying across uh, across everything you do. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I guess one area, going to be a segue here, but uh, that isn't so good in the IT industry at moments, when we look at the how diverse teams are, you know, generally we know this is kind of a, you know, it's white and it's male dominated. But I know you've been doing some interesting work, not only on driving some of this stuff, uh, working with with teams, but also measuring it, which I think is the key principle, isn't it? Because it's all right, all right kind of walking the the walk and actually setting up a lot of this work. But if you don't measure it and see where you are year on year, then you don't you can't really gauge, I guess, what progress you're making. Yeah, uh, and and again, I, I I like I think it's something you can be passionate about as an individual. You can drive a lot in, but ultimately, unless the organisation that you work in is tuned into it and is passionate about it too, that you have very limited success. So we're really lucky in Arm that we have Tamika Curry Smith, who's our chief diversity mm-hmm. officer, and we have a, a, a like an organise a small organisation that looks at how Arm operates in that space from. Mm-hmm people culture we have leadership and and partnerships and and the whole ecosystem about where we need to make a step change and within that process we identified a way of seeing how active people were as part of um, an annual review cycle so that we could measure in not measures that the success fit but just kind of see where we were and see what step changes we wanted to do and what actually active meant to us. Um, and I, I think that's made a huge difference. Yeah. So, I mean, just talk us through some of the stuff that you've done, because I know you're, you're a mentor, you're a judge. I mean, some of this stuff is internal to Tom, some of it's external. Just talk us through some of the activities that you're driving or supporting within Arm in, in that kind of DNI space. So um, within the DNI space, we have um, a DEI ambassador within IT, who looks at a calendar of events through the year that the IT organization can either participate into or consume. And that's overlaid on top of what ARM, um, ARM does itself. And I'm the, the sponsor for that as, uh, as I'm in Enterprise IT. And within my leadership, um, within ARM, we have ERG, so mm-hmm. um, employee uh, research unit uh, groups that look at different parts of diversity that we want to learn from and improve the experience in and my leadership team are sponsored uh, sponsor uh, pride at arm for example mm-hmm. and yeah. um, also um, disability at arm mm-hmm. so we we you know i think that we spend a lot of time wanting to make those areas better 
uh, in terms of investment in our time and initiatives that we can run and things that we can learn from. Um, we also, yes, you're right, I also mentor. I've mentored for a long time. Um, so I think I've mentored over 25 women now, and I've currently got uh, three women that I'm mentoring within ARM. Um, and interestingly enough, I'm, I, I think that... I'm not just sort so this, one of the ladies that I'm mentoring at the moment I'm I wasn't sought out but purely for being female um in a leadership role but also being a mother mm -hmm. because the transition back from maternity leave into a working environment and you understanding what your what, what your own parameters of that means uh, it isn't always easy for someone to decide so you know that was a really interesting dynamic um, we also invested last year, so um, I hadn't actually realised how how underfunded transgender healthcare was in the UK, mm -hmm. yeah. and and what a big issue it was. And I was lucky enough to have a lady in our organisation who was incredibly passionate about it, and had taken the time to put a really detailed talk together around it and about what other companies are, are offering. And through her work. She um, had been championing it across ARM and had come to me. And as part of my, you know, I, I was playing a unique role at the time on the UK leadership team as well, um, which is part of the group that approves our private healthcare each mm -hmm. year. So as the as we evolve our services, uh, you know, what we need to change, what what we don't. Um, and through Gemma's Gemma's work, we took it to the benefits team under Ailey Messenger. Mm -hmm. And then presented it to the UKLT, who who accepted that we now do full transgender healthcare in ARM. Mm -hmm. um, we, and I think at the at the moment we're still probably one of only I think there's less than five organisations in the UK who actually offer the full service. And you know when we looked at what we offered before, we thought that you know we had it written down. We had transgender healthcare on one tick. You know one tick meant that you got one consultation. Um, and no support afterwards and no plan. Um, so that, that for us, that was a huge step forward. Mm -hmm. um, not only because it it's an important issue that needs to be recognized, but also there is no other option. Yeah. So unless you have the money yourself to pay for it, the, what, there, is, the, there was something like a 60 year wait list in the UK or 70 year wait list for, nice. for, any, for any surgery. So mm -hmm. it, it really felt like it was the right thing to do. So Sarah, just on that, transgender policy i mean you mentioned before about the culture and the ethos of arm almost enabling you to do some of these changes mm -hmm. to, to what extent do you think that's enabled you to drive that change much more quickly than if you worked potentially in another sector yeah. you know where there's different view different more traditional view shall we say i mean you, you could encounter some challenges there yeah i i mean i guess I haven't worked in other sectors for four or five years now, so it's hard to reflect on that. What I will reflect on is you're right. I think Arm is Arm is a, a, an organisation that is very passionate and and puts an incredible amount of effort into the ability to be, as I said before, psychologically safe and yeah. and enabling you to be yourself. And you know, even if I look at our core values, which are um, we not I. Um, yeah do great things it's just changed from passion to progress from passion to progress to do great things which are essentially one in the same thing yeah. um but an evolution of showing you know how how we're maturing at arm mm -hmm. and then be your brilliant self mm -hmm. so they're the, the values that we are uh, assessed on every year 
as part of our performance cycle. And I think that you're right, we have a, so ARM enables us to do these things by having core values like, like this, but also it, it's a bit like the COVID thing. It was a perfect time. So there's a huge amount of it in the media. Mm. There was uh, an amazing woman in my organization, Gemma, who was championing it. We were going, you know, when it when it arrived to, to, to in my awareness, we were a few months off the annual cycle of review of policies. So it was actually a great time as well. And I think all of those things make a, a massive difference. And the fact that ARM is so progressively constantly assessing its benefits to make sure that they are right for the environment and the time that we live in is quite is quite a, a unique thing as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we don't set a five-year booper policy we set an annual one that we review and adapt as as the ecosystem outside of arm evolves yeah absolutely more more agility you can argue yeah. in terms of that, that culture um i guess my last i'm gonna add two questions in into one here but as you reflect on the last year what would you say you're most proud of i know you've done some interesting work in terms of uh, some pretty big workloads going into aws and, and that kind of cloud migration journey and SD1 as well, alongside the people, you know, which obviously you could argue the most important beyond the technology. But um, and then as the second part of that question is where next uh, for you and for ARM? We know there are changes ahead. So what's kind of uh, what's on your to do list uh, for 2023? Ooh, to do lists are always great, aren't they? Do we ever stick to them? I think we kind of we start yes. with a great list and we're like, do we always do them? Yeah. So we've had a it's been a it's been actually a great kind of four and a half years since I've joined ARM. We started with an infrastructure transformation, um, which was then the kind of foundations for cloud and SD WAN and kind of some of the programs that we've started to deliver in the last year, year, year and a half. And within the digital space. We've also completed um, our lead to cash program, which is, you know, the, the integration of Salesforce and S4HANA and our IP downloads. So we have kind of true end to end, which, again, is a great, a great baseline because that's, you know, once it's in, there's only ever evolution after that stage for us to mature our offerings, for us to, you know, continue to evolve how we do things like ledgers and other things. Um so we, we, we've had a great four and a half years and a, and a great year and a half. I think that the things that are starting to, the things that are forefront in my mind at the moment are a continuing evolution of our security. Um, so, you know, really kind of looking at what does it mean to be an engineering organization where our, where we don't make uh, things we are we are we are only as brilliant as the people that we have in and the IP that we sell. You know, that's a really unique um, security posture and how we continue to evolve those things um, and also kind of the change in how we're using things so for me with with and I hate to keep talking about COVID and one day we won't talk about COVID anymore I'm sure um, or it'll be a distant memory but you know we use the offices and and our facilities in a very different way before COVID We've gone into COVID and now we're in a hybrid working. And I'm really excited about what does that mean for collaboration technology, for how we use our, our buildings, how we in, still innovate with each other. Um, because I think that, it, you know, we where we've continued to evolve to valuing the individual's choice and how they want to consume IT and, and interface with the organisations, that that 
presents different challenges for the technology organization and how we work around that. And there are loads of other things, like don't get me wrong, <laughs> we have a whole host, but kind of there are two areas that, like kind of the collaboration and the security two areas that I'm really excited to continue to build on. Yeah. And, and as you say, as um, hybrid workplace is going to roll, I think, on and on. It will evolve over time, won't it, in terms of... I think it's also the vessel, right? Like, yeah. it's not like you can make, you know, you can't be particularly agile in that space. Yeah. So it takes planning and it takes experimentation and it, it takes a long time before you start to really see the benefits of it because we sign these monolithic long agreements to, to yes. stay in one place for a long time. Yeah, true. And culturally, it's, it's interesting. And from a leadership perspective, I'm certainly hearing a lot of CIOs and CTOs saying they're having to change almost the way that they oversee team, they oversee teams and individuals, you know, different individuals react differently, you can argue, to different work environments mm. um, as well. So it's, it's quite fascinating from a personal development standpoint, you can argue too, because you need to change how you oversee these teams and, and look into what the, not perform, just performance, but actual well-being as well you can argue yeah definitely and and i think that it's again one of those areas that are uh, that it has been uh particularly uh lucky in because mm-hmm. you know it's certainly in all it organizations that i've worked in they've always been global they've always been follow the sun you've always had to work with people remotely as well as next next to them in fact when i left reuters and joined catlin or xl mm-hmm. catlin which it became it was really strange that the daily service review was all in person in a meeting room in ju- just uh, just off um, Bishopsgate. And I'm like, oh, there's no one dialing in. There's no one dialing in because you're so used to kind of running this kind of global footprint. So I think IT was uh, felt very comfortable switching into this interfacing with people in different geographies and at different times more yeah. than other functions do. Absolutely. Now, Sam, my last two questions, are, we're going to go a little bit off track, uh, off piece, I should say, with with um, with this one. So two questions for you, one of which is, what was your dream job growing up? And the second one is, you can invite three people to dinner, uh, they can be dead or alive, um, name them. <laughs> so, um, the, like, uh, so the growing up, like, if you kind of look at my 16 to 18 year old education, I desperately wanted to be an actress. Mm-hmm. I mean, my one of my earliest memories is my mum dragging me off the stage um, as a, 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 a ballet class because I decided that's where I was doing mine. Um, and for what, though, though uh, through through studying it, I, I as I say, I learned I I had no natural talent in it. I have been to the Oscars lots of times through work. It's often nice. like working for a news agency to get to go nice. go yes. and do cool things. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what that did give me was a a, a level of confidence um and uh comfortableness in engaging and speaking and building relationships so so I desperately wanted to be an actress I'm not an actress mm-hmm. uh but I definitely learned during my time of studying it mm-hmm. um so yeah very different from IT <laughs> um, and and actually when I um when my acting teacher was like you know I'm really I'm really sorry Miss Cunningham this isn't this isn't going to be your career I did uh, I did send her a picture when I was at the first time I was at the Oscars just to kind of be like I made it not in the way we thought I would or maybe in the way you thought I would um but then uh, and then switching to dinner parties it's a tough one right like that's a really tough one um 
Um, so I think that I'm absolutely obsessed with home home programs. Mm -hmm. So Kevin McLeod has been on my dream dinner party list for a long time. Nice. Mm -hmm. I mean, Georgie Clark kind of gets on there every now and again, but it's, I mean, Kevin, Kevin's the original and the best. And then there's like a whole slew of amazing characters that you'd like to have actually got to meet and talk to and really find out the truth yeah you know, whether it's someone from the royal family like the queen or princess mm -hmm. diana to someone like margaret thatcher mm -hmm. wherever you are on the politics spectrum yeah. like she was pretty strong pivotal woman it'd be really great to pick her brain mm -hmm. and i think lastly on a kind of a personal level would probably be my dad mm -hmm. so he passed away three years ago oh <laughs> where did that come from but um, yeah, he passed away three years ago and had um, lived with dementia for seven. So I think I'd have him back. Yeah. You know, have some really positive memories of him, have my son get to see him in a non-ill way. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. Oh, that's a great, um, that's a wonderful list there, Sarah. And I'm sorry to have invoked those feelings about your dad. <laughs> but, um... These swings of emotion come yeah. from. But as I say, it's, you know, the family is um, they're the most important an important thing as a collective Definitely. and individually as well so um well listen thank you so much for joining me today and at cio uk leadership live it's been a wonderful we spoke a bit at the cio 100 didn't we but it was um nice to understand a bit more about your journey and some of the work that you've uh been been working on really the last year so um yeah once again uh congratulations on on being ranked in the c100 and lovely to chat with you and hope to see you again soon in the real world not necessarily on in the real world in the real world <laughs> thank you so much doug it's been lovely to talk to you fantastic thanks sarah and of course thanks to you viewers for tuning in to today's session i hope you enjoyed that and got some useful nuggets to take back into the workplace that's all for now but thanks goodbye and we'll see you soon